Hello, everybody. I'm Matt Wolford, and this is Trium Connects. My job, my modest job with uh, top managers is to try to convince them they have to shift from this equation to plus time plus means plus means you can generate value from supply chain and not only to avoid issues. We need to have strong regulations. I don't believe at all, I'm so sorry, but I don't believe that training awareness crisis will be enough to change behaviors of people. I used to say that complexity is like cholesterol. You have the good cholesterol and the bad cholesterol. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 17 of Triumph Connects. My guest for this episode is Professor Michelle Fender of HEC in Paris. Before we get into the specifics of this particular episode, I wanted just to take a moment to wish you all the very best over the holiday season and a very happy and prosperous new year. You know, I'm recording this from just outside of London, and the Omicron variant of the COVID virus is starting to make us all a bit nervous. If you've been directly affected, I hope that things are getting much better. If you've managed to escape this so far, uh, long may that last. One of the big consequences, at least in the commercial world, of the COVID crisis has been the exposure, if you will, or at least the realization of how important supply chains are, or maybe a better word than important might be how fragile perhaps supply chains are. And sticking with the holiday theme, uh, we celebrate uh, Christmas in my household, and I can tell you that many of the gifts that we have tried to arrange for uh, my children uh, just simply are not available. In addition, we went to buy a new car. Gosh, now it's been back in September and was told that the delivery date for that car would be February. So to put it in a very kind of understated way, we have become much more aware of the limits of our supply chain and how much we rely on very complicated extended supply chains, not within just our own businesses, but for all of us as consumers. So I thought it might be a good time to have a discussion with one of the world's foremost experts in supply chain management. Michelle is the author of more than a half dozen books on the topic of supply chain management, and they have been published both in English and in French. He also teaches the core course in supply chain value and operations management, both at the Triumph EMBA, as well as HEC's own executive masters and many, many of their custom programs. In addition to this, Michelle is a senior advisor on a number of executive committees for companies in various industries and sectors and who operate on a global scale. In my conversation with him today, we start on some basics of supply chain management and looking at how to view supply chain management as a key place for value creation in any business plan. A guiding principle of Michelle's work is that most CEOs, most managers have the kind of incorrect or at least an incomplete view of the role of supply chain management. And he calls this negative times negative equals positive. So the idea is that if you manage your supply chain well, kind of as a support function, 
you won't have any bad experiences like shortages of key materials or the failure to deliver things on time, and that this idea of the lack of problems in your supply chain, the lack of kind of mis-engineering uh, of your supply chain will lead to the lack of bad outcomes, and therefore that negative times a negative will equal a positive. You can go home and sleep at night. What he says, interestingly, is that what business leaders should be doing is looking at this as a potential area of value creation. So if they get this right, if they get the key strategic choices in the creation of their value chain correct, this itself can be a competitive advantage for the company and a source of value creation. Not just the avoiding of something that might be bad, but actually the active creation of value. Now, after we kind of nail down some of the basics, we spend the rest of the conversation talking about what we have learned so far through the COVID crisis, and what will the post-COVID world in supply chain management look like? For an in-depth look at many of these issues, I would recommend Michelle's newest book entitled Next Generation Supply Chains, The Guide for Business Leaders. And without any further ado, I bring you my conversation with Michelle Fender. So Michelle Fender, welcome to Triumph Connects. Great to be here. Nice to meet you, Matt. Great to see you. And uh, thank you for all the wonderful teaching you do on Triumph. For those uh, students who have had the pleasure of having you, uh, it's great to have you back. Maybe they'll, they'll recognize your voice. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here with you, Matt. All right. So look, we're going to jump right into it. And I thought that a, a good way to start might be to just get our basics right, because it seems to me that supply chain management or supply chains are one of those things where a lot of people use the words and they don't really quite maybe understand exactly what it means and it doesn't mean. So I thought maybe it might be a good place to start by just saying what we mean by a supply chain. Yeah, no, I think it makes it makes a lot of sense. Uh, okay. Actually, uh, you are fully right. Uh, even with COVID-19, we, we hear a lot of uh, things coming from different people, you know, journalists, uh, politicians, uh, uh, anyone, you know, talking about supply chain, supply chain management and logistics. Yeah. And actually, there is a confusion here. Yeah. Um, generally, uh, when we talk about first logistics, because this is the most, uh, this is the simpler thing, you know, logistics, is just execution of operations. And logistics means fundamentally picking, packing, shipping, delivering a good to a person. And this is actually what people, they look for. They want to be delivered on time. You know, they want from the order to the delivery of the goods to be, to, to, to be, to just to keep the promise uh, of what they purchased. Yeah. So, and this is what you call logistics. Okay. okay. But logistics is not, I would say, supply chain management. Managing a supply chain is something else. What we call a supply chain fundamentally is the flow of goods from end to end. So you start from the sourcing of the raw materials and the components, you know, and you go to the delivery of the finished goods to a customer. And a supply chain can be, let's say, global, local, fragmented, integrated, whatever, and so on, you know. So, so a supply chain is the sequence of those activities, okay? And then you have uh, a, a certain number of players along the supply chain. And those okay. players, they, they act, you know, they perform activities. Logistics is one of them. Okay. Now, just to conclude, a supply chain management is what? It's, it's very simple is managing a supply chain. 
And when we talk about managing a supply chain, it means what? It means fundamentally forecasting, planning supply, planning production, planning transportation, and managing inventories. Okay. So I hope it's more clear now, you know, logistics, purely operations, a supply chain, a sequence of players and activities from end to end, and then supply chain management, the activity of monitoring the process of, uh, let's say, of flows, information uh, of goods, you know, flows of, of goods, flows of information, and flows of finance as well, of course. Okay. So I'm going to try to use an example, and maybe this example will help us. I mean, I, that, that's very clear, but I, I'm mm-hmm. sometimes... Well, let me start and then we can talk about it. Yeah. Um, there's a great classic article um, I remember reading in, law, uh, in graduate school uh, by a guy named Leonard Reed. Mm-hmm. And it was published uh, back in 1958. So we're, we're talking about, you know, up-to-date publications here. But it became a really classic article. It was called I Pencil. And it was a bit of a bizarre article in that it pretended to be a pencil telling its life story um, to a reporter. Okay, and it traces each step of the process in making the pencil from kind of harvesting the raw materials to the all the way to the complete product. So, you know, it starts, you know, my core uh, was uh, sitting in a mountain in a graphite mine and it was mined by a guy named Julio and Julio, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the spoiler of the story is really that it's hugely much more complicated to make a pencil than you might think. Okay, and there's all these different steps. Now, for Reed, for those who are interested, it was a piece of Cold War proof that the kind of efficiency of capitalism was better than any kind of planned economy because all these steps in the process of turning this raw material into a pencil kind of happened automatically with the invisible hand of the market. You didn't need anybody planning it. So leaving aside that particular argument, I just thought it might be interesting to think about this pencil pencil from the start to the end. So if we think of that process... Is it right to think about from you know the all the activities that go from the wood sitting in a tree and the graphite sitting in a mine, everything from there to delivering the end product? Is that the complete supply chain? Absolutely. And absolutely. And don't forget something, Matt, which is after the use of the pencil, you have the rec- recycling part of it. Okay. Today we talk as well about the uh, circular economy. Yep. We are facing a lot of waste generation. Yep. And then there is complementary to, let's say, the regular supply chain. We have the, the waste-based supply chain to, to collect the waste and to hopefully to dismantle the products and then to recycle them and then to produce what we call secondary materials. Okay. And then so that, yeah. them. So you see, so it's a, it's a full chain, yeah. No, that makes sense. So I guess the old fashioned way of thinking it is a, is a, is a single linear kind of process. Yeah. And what we're trying to do is bend that process around and have the, at the end of the life, manage the end of the life to put, kind of plug it back into the beginning. Absolutely. You have this a fantastic book, by the way, called Next Generation Supply Chain Management uh, or Next Generation Supply Chain, sorry. Uh, gr- <laughs> a great book. I got Thank the title you. wrong, but I, I have read it and I, and I enjoyed it very much. I learned a lot. But in there, you make some distinctions and I thought maybe it might be useful to get these basics right. You make one distinction is between internal and external supply chains. Okay. Yeah. Now, if we think about the pencil, just to maybe to animate the discussion, mm-hmm. 
what would be in that process from the mining to the end product? What would be kind of, if we wanted to think about internal, external parts, what, how would we distinguish it there? Well, Mark, it's, it's, it's a very interesting question, which is related to a previous one, which is related to your strategy of make or buy. Okay. So that means if you decide, you, you, when, you, when you look at the full, what Michael Porter called in 1985, in a very famous article, he called it the value chain, you know, and he was completely focusing on internal activities of that value chain inside right. the company you know okay and the assumption behind it is prior to this to the design of this internal value chain you have made a decision in terms of what i decide to produce in house and what i decide to produce outside outside i, I decide to outsource okay to and suppliers okay so the supply chain design itself depends on the answer to that question do gotcha. you decide to integrate internally X percent of the value along the supply chain, or do you decide to subcontract it? So this is why we have this notion of border between internal versus external supply chains. Gotcha. So, so if I'm a pencil manufacturer and I say, look, I'm not going to harvest the wood. Yeah, exactly. I'm not going <laughs> to mine the graphite. What I'm going to do is get those products from somebody else. So that part of it, I'm going to outsource. And then what I'm going to do is put the pencil together and, and paint it. And then, and the internal getting, making sure I have the supplies and time to paint and put it together. That would be the internal part of the supply chain. Is that, is, exactly. is that, is, do I have it right? Exactly. So it's a question about what have you decided to, to do as a core business? And what you decide to, to outsource because you don't consider it as, for instance, the pencils, you will have to deliver them to the customers or to the bookstores or whatever, right. you know. So, and transportation means, oh, if I decide to do it on my own, I have to invest in truck fleet or whatever. Well, no, 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 no question, you know. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. So then I decide to subcontract it. So these transportation part of my supply chain is a part of my supply chain, but I decided to subcontract it gotcha. to a specialist, so which is a career. And that I, would be an external part of the supply exactly. chain. Exactly. Okay. And so you, I suppose you could have some business models that have almost everything externalized, right? I could pay somebody else to make the pencil. I could pay somebody else to brand the pencil. I could pay somebody else to to deliver the pencil, all I'm doing is the sales function, I suppose. Is it, would, that, would that be possible? Yeah, it's absolutely possible. And you have very famous companies uh, who, which decided to do so. We call them fabless. It means that they have decided to outsource everything. And their subcontractor, they produce, we can call them blank products. Yeah. And you just put the label, you, you stick the label on the product, you know, uh, when the product is done, and you subcontract everything. The only thing you don't subcontract is commercial activities and maybe sometimes sourcing when you decide to source, you know, to select okay. suppliers, yeah. you know. And then, Matt, it comes to a concept of, let's say, control tower. That means you, the supply chain management means in that case, okay, I have no asset, all right? Yeah. I have absolutely no asset, all right? I have subcontract all operations to uh, subcontractors. And then my only job is to design the product from R&D activities and then to sell them and then to monitor the supply chain through a control tower, through 
information systems. So gotcha. my job is just to integrate no more through assets, no more through equity, but through data and IT. Gotcha. Okay. All, All right. right. So interesting. So that would be, I mean, I way back in the day, I did some work for Indian National Railways. And they and so so it, it reminds me of that a little bit because on the opposite end, because they were kind of fully integrated. They had a, a, a very kind of integrated uh, system where they made the trains. Yeah. They produced the schools where the children of the employees went. They wow. did the housing. Yeah. They did yeah. everything. Yeah. And so that would be that they had, so to use the language correctly, they had internalized almost yes. all of the supply yeah. chain. Is it with, yeah. okay. Yeah. And on the other end, the only thing is information that, you're, that you, you keep to yourself. And you okay. have a lot of examples like this, Matt. When you look at, for instance, uh, LVMH, so luxury group, or you look yeah. at Michelin, the tire maker, the, the, those companies, they, they produce the raw materials in their own plantations yeah. and harvest the rubber. Yeah. They produce their own machineries. All right. So this is their own technology. They don't subcontract that because they consider this is absolutely core to, gotcha. to monitor, to master this technology. They, they control on their own distribution. That means in some cases, they have their own point of sales network. Right. And the yeah. brand yeah. is completely different. Maybe sometimes it's Louis Vuitton, it's Dior, but entire, it's Euromaster. Your master is a Michelin company. Who gotcha. knows that? Okay. And even recycling the tire after the use of the tires, they are involved on it to, to, to get back the, the, the materials, you know, okay. and to recycle them. So it, it's, it's a fully integrated, uh, I would not say only supply chain, I would say value chain. In that Val case. The whole value chain. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So then another spectrum that you talk about, another kind of uh, uh, way to distinguish or try to cut apart or try to conceptually understand supply chains are what you call fragmented versus integrated. Mm. So what's the distinction there and, and, and why is it important for our discussion? That, that, that's, uh, I think, a quite important question. Um, beyond what we have just discussed regarding internalized versus externalized, okay, there is a question of the number of steps within my supply chain. And what I call fragmented means the higher number of steps you have, the higher fragmented your supply chain is. Okay. And why is it important? And you ask the good question. Why is it interesting to make this, this distinction between fragmented versus uh, integrated? Because the higher number of interfaces you have, the higher number of steps you have within a supply chain, the much more complicated it is to monitor it. You got it? Yep. yep. This, is, this is the problem because uh, a definition, Matt, we can, we can provide for naming supply chain management is our job is to connect things. We connect players. We connect countries. We, we connect facilities. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, and the higher number of pieces of the puzzle you have, right. the much more complicated it is to monitor it. So you see the, the two axes. Yeah. The first axis is what you discussed before with internalizing versus externalizing, which is, I think that by internalizing, I will be in a better position to monitor my supply chain. This is the assumption. 
The second axis is the more fragmented my supply chain is, the more difficult it is to monitor it and then to secure. This is a question of, you know, securing the supply and then to deliver on time in full products to customers. That, okay. that, that's the stake. Yeah. So that's a, that's, a, that's a really good way to think of it. So let me, let me just make sure that I understand. So let's say you had highly fragmented supply chain and we're comparing a highly fragmented internal to external. Yeah. Both would be super complicated, but maybe in the highly fragmented internal, I'd have, a, I'd have an edge on the information because it would be easier for me to monitor perhaps because it's all in-house. So if it was if it's fragmented external, maybe it's a, even more complicated. Is that is, did I get that right? Yes and no. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> tell me why. I will tell you why. Even if you are in the same company, imagine. Let, let me give you an example. You produce flat glass through floats, and with these flat glass, you produce either windshield for cars or windows for construction business, all right? So that's the same company, all right? But even if, Matt, you're in the same company, do you think the level of cooperation, the level of integration uh, is, is, is at the right level? No. A key word, Matt, in supply chain management is trust. And, and sometimes it's easier to trust somebody from outside of course amazingly yeah you know yeah, I, and, I don't know why okay i'm not a psychologist no but... well uh you know it's, it's something i talk about when i teach negotiation i mean internal okay. negotiations are almost always more bitter than external negotiations yeah. more conflictual exactly. and i would guess it's even compounded when you have a firm that is actually made up from acquired other firms so you have the complication where if you have an internal supply chain that's highly fragmented and those fragmented pieces are across different chunks of your competitors that you've consumed through time, then that can be even uh, that uh, maybe multiplies the information challenge, I would guess. It's amazing. You know, I, I don't disclose the name of the company, but I worked for a very, very vertically integrated company, you know, so this company has a distribution part yeah. and the head, the CEO of this uh, distribution part where was negotiating with the mother company providing the products, okay? Okay. And in a negotiation, the guy say, hey, you are not only my single supplier. I purchase as well products from other companies which are your competitors. And I can tell you, my level of cooperation in terms of supply chain management is much better. Hmm. So please <laughs> share, share your data in terms of forecast, help me to plan my production activities. And they say, hey, I have other suppliers to work with. So if you don't work to play the game, I'm so sorry, but I prefer to source from yeah. external competitors. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. So this is exactly, you know, so this is, what, this is why it's not okay. because it's internal that the game is easier. Yeah, then that, then that, that might be an illusion. Okay, so one more dimension to add to this, com already complex story. <laughs> would be um, you talk about obviously the difference between global and local supply chains. Mm. And I think that this just is a matter of what legal jurisdiction the parts of your supply chain come from, but I, I'm not sure whether I've got that right. Is, is, am, I, am I thinking of that the right way? 
complete what you said, Matt. We have to understand that a supply chain has two sides. We have the supply side, all right, where from which we source a raw mat, a components, whatever. And then we have the demand side. And as we said in the introduction, the full end-to-end supply chain connects both sides. So the supply one and the demand one. And each of them could be either local or global. I mean by that, the sup- you can supply locally or you can supply globally and you can sell locally or you can sell globally. And this is why in, in my book, actually, I, I just explained that we have four generic supply chain patterns. We have the local to local, we have the local to global, the global to local, and then the much more complex, which is I supply global and I sell global. Yeah. So you match a supply side with a demand side and each of them is global. So it is very, very complicated to manage that. So it all becomes extremely complicated. And, and as you said, it becomes a fundamental part of the decisions. And it, and it seems to me completely tied to the overall strategic decision of the company. Um, and part of their uh, fundamental to their business model, these, these decisions across. So sometimes in between the lines, I can read some frustration on your part about business <laughs> leaders who fail to recognize how important these decisions are. So uh, I wonder if in your experience, where do, what part of this do business leaders fail to invest enough time and thought? in their supply chain? Where, where are the kind of blind spots or, or is it just random? Does it depend on too much on the individual case? Uh, first, first of all, you are a very good reader, Matt. I'm very <laughs> impressed that you have detected my frustration between the lines of my book. So very good reading indeed. Um, I, actually, Matt, this is, this is my life. This is my professional life. You know, when I started working on those topics uh, 35 years ago, oh my God, it's a long time ago. Um, we didn't discuss about supply chain management. The word itself didn't exist, okay? So we were talking about logistics, only logistics. So it right. means transportation, uh, inventory, stocks, invent- warehouses, you know, things like that. And to be honest, Matt, over time, and in, let's say, for instance, both engineering schools and business schools, even the best ones, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> supply chain management, has been considered not as a business activity, but as a support activity. Hmm. And you know, you have to, this is like in, you know, the origin of that is military activities. You know, the origin of supply chain logistics is military activities. And definitely historically in military business, you, you have generals defining the strategy and then you have the others executing it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and supply chain management historically has been perceived, considered just as a, a support function. Just do it. You know, so, so with COVID-19, eventually we discovered that the world was facing huge uh, issues and with the environmental dimension now as well. And this is connected to this notion of considering supply chain management at the right level. And and why is it like this? To me, it's a question of education, fundamentally. I mean, the CEOs, uh, the executive committees in the large corporations, you know, 
they were historically not so well educated on those topics. Yeah. So, so then this is why I, it's one of my explanations. The, yeah. the other explanation is the fact that is why the, in the title of my book, you know, and I, I pay a lot of attention to value. I mean, not to consider, you know, my, my obsession, Matt, is to change the equation from minus time minus equals plus to plus time plus equals plus. Let me explain. Minus time minus equals plus means what? Minus, I want to avoid any, the second minus issue in supply chain management, then I can sleep in the night. So this is minus time minus equals plus. And my, my job, my modest job with uh, top managers is to try to convince them they have to shift from this equation to plus time plus means plus means you can generate value from supply chain and not only to avoid issues. And even today, Matt, we, we face shortage of chips, shortage of plastic, shortage of many things. We hear that the, the, the recovery of the economy is facing big stake because we have car assembly line stopping because of the shortage of some raw materials. And then, ooh, 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 it's a problem. It's, it's still minus time minus equals yeah, plus. Yeah. It's the old way, the, the old world is still the old world. Oh my God. And not only the old world, I mean, I'll, I'll add to that um, lament. Um, I think that also what you hear is certain statements often by politicians. And again, I don't need to mention any politicians that clearly betray a lack of understanding about what, what we're talking about. So for example, you'll hear things say, well, what we need to do is create our own supply, our own, we need to bring the chip manufacturing in-house. We need to bring it to France or to Britain or to, and as if you can just decide, oh, tomorrow we're going to reproduce all of these complex supply chains and reproduce them and just put them in France because it's too dangerous. So I get this feeling sometimes, and, and maybe you can tell me whether I, I'm right. Think about the financial crisis in 2008. And what, what, one of the things you had during that crisis is you had a bunch of consumers buying stuff that they had no idea what was in them. The financial system becomes so complex that people were purchasing things they didn't understand. Mm. And because they didn't understand them, when they blew up in their face, they were like surprised mm. because it, it, was, it was something that, that it was too complex for them. Mm. We've already talked about the complexity of a global for global external, highly fragmented supply chain, et cetera, et cetera. Do you get the feeling sometimes that business leaders just don't understand the level of complexity of what makes their business run? I'm very happy, Matt, you introduced the notion of complexity. Uh, I used to say that complexity is like cholesterol. You have the good cholesterol and the bad cholesterol. Okay. Let me, <laughs> let me explain. Uh, but no, because your example with the financial crisis in 2008 is brilliant. And I fully agree uh, with, with your argument. We have to keep complexity as long as this complexity generates value for the customer and the consumers. For instance, if you decide to customize products, you want to offer a large diversity, all right? 
or if you want to deliver in a very short delivery lead time product to customers, if customers are ready to pay, if there is a value behind it, let's go for that complexity. Yeah. And it could be an entry barrier for competitors. So that, that, that's fine. Yeah. But in many cases, we just make things complex just for being complex without any value added or value perceived by the yeah. customers. And that's the bad cholesterol. And we have to attack it. So I, I would agree with you that in some cases, um, th- there is uh, almost uh, CEOs um, giving up, you know, uh, working on those topics because it becomes too complex and uh, too interconnected, things like that, and, and this, without any strategic vision on that. Yeah. And one gets the feeling that, as you were saying, you know, minus times minus equals plus, but one gets the feeling that now during this time of COVID, et cetera, where we're having crises, where we have problems in supply chains, that people are for the first time going, oh, where does this stuff come from? (laughs) You know, how is it put together? Okay, I might know one level down, maybe even two levels down, but where do the raw raw materials come from? What's the initial process to put them through? So for example, you were talking about um, the circular economy and it made me think of, solar panels, right? So solar panels, the material that goes into making solar panels, the raw materials. Yeah. It's things like coking. Uh, essentially, it takes a lot of energy. You have to keep Absolutely. heating stuff up to a big bunch of things. Yeah. And almost all this production of the raw materials. Now, not the, not the places that put together solar panels, but almost all the production of the raw materials happens in China. And they're almost all powered by coal. Yeah. So the idea here is that one gets the feeling, particularly as ESG concerns, environmental, social governments concerns get more and more, uh, more and more to the forefront. It's kind of driving this understanding where one gets almost the impression where people go, oh, oh, is that where that comes from? You know, as you said, they haven't, not only have they not looked to the supply chain as a source of value, potential source of value, they only know that they put an order into Joe's solar panels and, and they put them on the roof and they can feel good about themselves. Fully agree, fully agree, Matt. You know, even at home um, with my wife, when, when she loves strawberries and, and things like that. So regularly I look at the package and I look at where, where those come from. And you can see uh, Brazil, uh, South Africa uh, and, and so on. And I say, darling, please, can you stop purchasing those products? Can we, can we eat natural fruits of the season instead yeah. of uh, sourcing those products? Uh, I, last time it was, um, it was from Peru, I remember. And so yeah. my, my, blueberries, darling, darling, blueberries from Peru. Yeah. Darling, are you, are you aware about the CO2 emissions and the transportation yeah. cost of those products? So don't, don't forget you married uh, an expert in supply chain. <laughs> <laughs> well, then it becomes even more complicated, of course, because you say, okay, we aren't going to do those anymore. And the tens of thousands of people that work in the blueberry industry in Peru no longer have a job. Et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. anyway, I think what's what's interesting here, I think that the common thread is the complexity, right? And the, and whether it's good complexity or bad complexity and how you manage that. And that's a big part of that kind of managing the supply chain. And I think that, I mean, I'll just give a, a, a slight here plug for uh, the Trium degree in that 
that's kind of what we try to do in Triumph, that we say, mm-hmm. look, you have to understand all of these things. This is much more complex than just what it looks like, and including the supply chain. And I think that with the ESG part, it seems to me, and, and I'd love to have your opinion on this, the good side, the optimistic side of my brain says that this is going to make people much more conscious of the complete supply chain and try to act in responsible ways throughout the whole supply chain structure because of reputational uh, risk, operational risk, et cetera. Sometimes the more cynical part of my brain says what this will be is it will drive people to much more fragmented and much more long supply chains so they can hold the dirty parts of their business a long ways away from them. Which do you think is more common? You know, um, I am an educator and um, I believe in uh, transformation of people uh, through uh, training, information, uh, and so on. I am not so optimistic, not so pessimistic. I I try to be realistic. And for those topics, Matt, I think we need a strong state. We need to have strong regulations. I don't believe at all, I'm so sorry, but I don't believe um, that training awareness um, crisis will be enough to change behaviors of people. I don't think so. We need to have strong regulations forbidden uh, or in, imposing some taxes and things like that, you know, to stimulate the right behavior. We need both, okay? I'm not saying we need only regulation. This is not what, not what I'm saying. We need absolutely both. But today, um, regulations are too weak, I would say, in my opinion, regarding that. So mm-hmm. we, we, we live in a liberal market. Uh, we have uh, autonomous players. And even the consumers, they decide what they want to do. So if they want to purchase something, there is a supplier somewhere providing yeah. what they want, what they look for. Yeah. You want to be delivered into hours with this product? Not an issue. You have somebody uh, entering the market and proposing this offer. As long as you have customers paying for it, it's okay. And you want it cheap. Exactly. Yeah. You know? All right. I will try to be realistic as well. I I think that's probably a mixture and I think it's highly complex because I don't know for sure sometimes where we can draw the the sphere of responsibility. So for example, we might say we're going to, we're we're interested in carbon restriction. And instead of just yelling at China and saying how bad they are, we might say, well, look, actually their emissions all come from making stuff for us. So Mm -hmm. maybe the, the, the carbon tax, the carbon label has to go with the product and not the the location of consumption but it has to be integrated into the both the location of the production and the consumption so you get this idea that we can consume a bunch of stuff in the west and wring our hands about how much carbon china is putting into the atmosphere while they're putting all this carbon into the atmosphere to sell us cheap stuff so i, I don't know how that gets solved but again it's it's a it's a, a somewhat of an interesting question but where that sphere of responsibility is. And I share your intuition that it has to be at some sort of state level, but how you do that, I think that's a big puzzle for our time. But it's a very relevant point, Matt. You know, when you source a product today, you have the obligation to put ingredients list on the product, you know, so from food or whatever, cosmetics, whatever, you, you need to communicate and to display 
the nature of the ingredients and, and the location of it. And it's a very good idea you have here to, to put the CO2 emissions, for instance, uh, from end to end, you know, within your supply chain. And to say, when I purchase this product, hey, be aware uh, that from the sourcing of the raw materials, the delivery to this store where you, you purchase the product from, this is the total CO2 grams or tones or whatever have been have been generated, you know. Yeah. So I think I think the the starting point is communication. It's just uh, displaying, sharing information about how much is it in terms of carbon uh, impact, you know, when you purchase yeah. a product. I think it's a very fair point. But of course, this is um, as the WTO currently works. As far as I understand, you cannot ask a company necessarily. It's it's seen as a non-tariff trade barrier to require a company to say how something is produced. So the WTO is not empowered to look mm. at how a product is produced. It's only how it's traded, as I understand it. But anyway, yeah. that, that may well change. So yeah. I want to respect your time. And I, I see the clock ticking away. It always is, is always my problem. I've, I run out of time. But <laughs> I want to talk about uh, our current supply chain crisis. Mm. And, you know, we're all uh, worried, or at least I can tell you that my teenage son is very upset for example, because he can't buy a PS5 um, and they're, they're un unavailable <laughs> because of uh, problems with chips. So there is clearly problems in supply chain that have been created through uh, the COVID crisis. I guess I'm not all that interested in looking at what created that problem, because I think that that's been covered a lot in a lot of places. But I guess I want to ask you, because it seems to me as I read a lot of material that's being talked about, about what are the implications of the crisis in the supply chain? And it kind of comes down into two arguments. One that says, look, this is relatively short term. It's caused by this external shock of COVID. We have excess demand because people have a lot of money. They aren't spending it on services. At the same time, we have a contraction of supply because of temporary logistics problems and COVID people getting sick, et cetera. Once we work through the external shock, once everything gets moving again, mm -hmm. we can go mm -hmm. back to just how the things were before and everybody's happy. Yeah. So it's a short-term problem. And then other people say, no, COVID's revealed something fundamental about a structural weakness in our supply chains. And we have to think about this kind of, if you think of one of the things, just-in-time type of production, that's just too risky because there's always going to be these external shocks. And whatever will come post-COVID will be significantly different than it was before, because what COVID has done, it's kind of revealed the, the fundamental weaknesses in the system. And perhaps there'll be a much greater emphasis, for example, on resilience in the supply chain than uh, just in time uh, at the least price. So first of all, I want to ask you, because you are the smartest guy I know in this field by far, is it useful to think about this argument in these two different ways? And if it is, which do you think is more likely? Are, 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 is this a short-term shock that we'll get over or will we, we see something post-COVID that is completely different than we saw before? I would say uh, the current crisis reveals vulnerabilities of the current supply chain models. So the short-term is a short-term by essence, but it's just revealing how weak the design of the current supply chain models has been done before. So for me, it's more a structural uh, issue and with a lack 
I would say, of the top management of large corporations to, to challenge, to model, to simulate what if scenarios, and then to make good decision at two levels. Level one is redesigning the supply chain and sometimes changing the pattern of my supply chain model, as we said before, from local to global or global to local, whatever. And secondly, to implement the, the, the appropriate monitoring IT tools to connect and to provide visibility. The, the, you know, so design is location, is dimensioning uh, my facilities, my inventories, you know, what we call in technical word, the decouping point. So where we do make to stock, where we do make to order, where should we locate inventories, you know, around the planet. So it's a design part. But the second part is the monitoring of my supply chains, and especially with much more interconnected information systems. And the keyword is visibility, sharing data. And uh, because this is the basis of the trust, as we discussed before in, in, in our conversation. So I consider COVID-19 as a great opportunity to, to really attack and to, to challenge the current supply chain models in terms of design and monitoring. And their main weakness, as you see it, is the current main weakness? The main weakness is the lack of transparency the lack of interconnection, uh, the lack of visibility, you know, between the players. Because the problem is, you know, Matt, when you don't trust your supplier as a customer, what do you do? You overestimate your need. Or you decide to have a longer delivery time. Or, I mean, you make um, wrong decisions, which may have consequences in terms of cost, in terms of cash, and things like that. So trust is the fundamental pillar to me in terms of the efficiency of my supply chain. But don't forget before trust and monitoring the design of it, the design, where I should locate my facilities, double sourcing regarding suppliers, um, the right means of transportation and, and things like that, you know. But the, to answer your question, yeah, I, I consider that today this is the lack of connectivity uh, between the players. So it's, it's interesting you, you mentioned this because of the interconnected nature of the data and, and the running of simulations. And I know that there's several specialist software providers out yeah. there that yeah. help companies with this, with this challenge. Mm -hmm. And they can use some very, very sophisticated AI um, enhanced kind of learning, machine learning to try to manage these. Do you think we'll get to a point where if we have this interconnected, clear data set that we can use, that we will be able to kind of outsource a lot of the supply chain management to more or less a very smart software? It happened already 20 years ago with okay. the development of what we call 4PL, so fourth party logistics. Yes. Okay, yeah. and those companies are non-asset company. You have former 3PL, third-party logistics like Kinunago, UPS in the US, DHL. They funded, they, they offer to the market this notion of control tower as we discussed before. Hmm. 
but the solutions isn't there. No, what is the problem? The, the problem to me is to have a common data model between the players and to have accurate and accessible data. I have a, a customer, it's, it's a 45 billion US dollar company. It's a manufacturer. This customer, he has just launched a program called data and analytics. Because the problem map is not only analytics, it's not AI. Prior to that, the question is the data. Mm. So it, it's a question of, do, you know, Matt, that the major issue in supply chain management beyond connectivity is the lack of accuracy of the inventory levels in my IT system. Inventories are wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I think I have those inventories in my supply chain, in the vessel, in this warehouse, in this hub and things like that, in the store, everywhere. I think I can trust. No, no, the data are wrong. So we have an issue on real-time data and accurate data to monitor my, 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 my supply chain. Mm. So before analyzing them, before modeling, before simulating what-if scenarios, as we said before, a major stake is the quality of the data in my system. And firms that can help other firms with that problem, that's a big growth area, I would guess. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So a final point here, this just came to me um, today. In fact, I was working with a client mm -hmm. um, and again, we, it's a manufacturer and they were talking a bit about, they were now, it's a big automotive manufacturer. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this person was telling me a big part of their job these days um, is trying to keep their suppliers from dying. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the, a lot of their suppliers are distressed. Um, and the idea is, is like, okay, if these guys go out of business, we're in trouble. Yeah. Right. We're in trouble. Now I think of it kind of like this. And again, I'm sorry for the continued use of analogies. I guess it gives you an insight into how my <laughs> brain works, but I, I kind of think of it like this, you know, if in the COVID times, the, this idea of essential workers, Right, we have all these people that we don't pay very much, mm. and once COVID hit, we realized, oh, if these people aren't working, we're in big trouble. Now we they they capture almost none of the value chain. Let's say mm. that in using the language we talked about before, these these yeah. essential workers, like people who pick up our rubbish, or people who work in the restaurants, or people who work in the coffee bar, or people who clean our hotel rooms or, or people who are, help uh, take care of our parents in care homes, et cetera, et cetera. But they turn out to be, they're absolutely essential to how we live our life. Now, one gets the feeling that maybe the COVID crisis is for these big manufacturing firms, these big firms, they're going, oh, we, we've been treating these suppliers kind of as the same way that we all been treating the, our essential workers. We don't pay them very much. They don't get very big of the, the value chain. And now we're in the situation where we're having to invest heavily in them because if we don't, th there, there's going to be a problem. So I just wondered, do you think an inevitable outcome of, of the crisis will be that we'll have much kind of thicker companies, more kind of vertically integrated where suppliers start or where suppliers companies kind of stop and the manufacturing companies start, that those will be even more blurred as we go forward? 
it's a very fair point, uh, Matt, what you have uh, raised here. I have a customer for the last 10 years, which is not in automotive, but which is in the aircraft okay, industry. Uh, and in the aircraft industry, you know, this is like in automotive, you have a tier one, tier two, tier three as suppliers. And what I see today is, unfortunately, what, not what you are seeing. What I see today is those companies that try to survive by number one, reinventing the product they want to offer in the coming years, especially due to carbon impact and yeah. blah, 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 yeah. as we discussed before. So the first stake is if we want to survive, we have to speed up the yeah. time to market yeah. of the new product design. That's step number one. Number two, we have to re-engineer the production processes of what we do today because we have to speed up the delivery time to replace the old generation of products and we have to reduce cost of production yeah, yeah. And, and then only we pay attention to what you pointed out which is uh, to have healthy suppliers and to take care of them unfortunately this is not yet the situation mm. personally i face on a daily basis hopefully 2022 they are going to pay more attention to their tier one and tier two and to share. Because today I can tell you, I talk to those suppliers and the level of consideration, their customer as an aircraft maker, you know, is not at the level right now. It's going yeah. to, to become it. Okay. It, it's coming, but, but not yet now. Because can you imagine the trouble an aircraft manufacturer or a car manufacturer, they, they, they were facing 2020 and 2021. Mm. So, yeah. uh, uh, so then, I mean, uh, looking outside, you know, you, you have a sort of tropism, you know, to, to focus on your own issues and yes. then to, to say after, we survived. Okay, now we can pay attention more to customers and to suppliers. So first yeah. customers and then suppliers. I agree. And I do see that, but I, I think that maybe, and we'll see this, well, I guess it's an empirical question. We'll see whether it happens in 2022, 2023. My worry would be if I was that firm that I'd say, oh, my customers are back. Supplier, I need uh, to increase my order from uh, 100 units to 1,000 units. And, the yeah. and then no one answers the phone and you go, oh, hello, supplier, are you there? And they disappeared. You know, they, they, they don't exist anymore. Absolutely. And so Not then, and then right. I, I, can't, I can't supply anything because I need this part or I need this piece. But you have to keep in mind that there is a sort of movement, you know, it's not a big one to re-internalize some activities too. Yeah. So we are closing, we are closing the loop. We, we started with at the beginning of the conversation that in order to keep jobs, in order to better control my value chain, I could decide as well to re-internalize some operations I subcontracted before to some external suppliers. Yes. Okay, yeah. And that's, I mean, it gives me, uh, I just want to touch on one of the geopolitical aspects of the crisis that's coming on now. And what we see is increasing tensions, uh, political tensions, uh, or what we'll just call them strategic rivalries, let's say, between China and the US or China and Europe that may alter the shape or structure of the supply chains going forward. Or some people argue that it will. 
Um, and that some, uh, particularly politicians, argue that we need kind of regional, more regional-based supply chains. You, I guess you would call them maybe not local, but more localized, maybe more regional with kind of semi-independence across these different blocks or something like this. Do you, first of all, do you think that this is even possible to do this? <laughs> and it, particularly if we want our stuff that we want and we want it cheap, and we live in this globalized world, do you think even if we wanted to at this point, we could start to disentangle the global supply chains? Well, uh, very good wording, Matt. <laughs> Your English is much better than me. Uh, <laughs> that's mine. Um, no, you're absolutely right. Impossible. Um, I believe in the fact that we need to have in the future concurrent supply chain models. So as we said before, if you want to eliminate the bad cholesterol, you have to redesign your supply chain. That means maybe sometimes you have to move back from global to regional. Okay, for some activities and some, some businesses, but globally speaking, roughly speaking, generally speaking, no, we need to have concurrent, parallel, different supply chain models. And, and we, you will have the coexistence of global, with regional, with local, and so on. It depends on product value. It depends on the availability of the raw materials, the access to energy, the access to labor, the access to customers, and so on and so on. I mean, so it, it, it's, a, it's a strategic design. So no, no, it's, it's impossible to imagine that we have a huge shift back to uh, localizing, again, uh, activities like this. It's purely politician uh, speech. <laughs> now you're being <laughs> diplomatic. <laughs> politician speech, okay. Yes. Uh, all right. One final uh, question for you, and then we'll get you out of here because I, I promise to, to respect your time. Mm -hmm. So at the end of each of our uh, sessions, first of all, I want to thank you for providing me even more insight than, than I got from the book. I urge everybody to take a look at the book. We'll have it in the show notes so you can see the, the citation. Um, Michelle, you've been very generous with your time. I really appreciate it. I've learned a lot. Uh, I, my one final question we ask each of our guests, it, is there a something that you have consumed as a, a, a thing of entertainment or information sometime during the COVID crisis? So a book, a podcast, TV show, film, play, whatever it might be, fiction, nonfiction, that you would recommend to others. Um, and uh, just, just uh, anything at all would be great. Mm. Um, well, I would say, um, first of all, you know, um, I, I learn from my customers fundamentally. So I learn from the field. So this is my first answer. So sorry, it's not something we can display and share so much, but this is, um, I, I try to understand the world from the field fundamentally. Right. Yep. No, something which was amazing to me is the number, and this is something I, I, I read actually, and I would advise uh, to, to have a look at it, is the number of articles that um, consulting firms in strategy like McKinsey, uh, uh, BCG, Bain, and whatever, um, were very inspiring because they, they, they really published uh, articles um, dedicated and focused on supply chain management. And to me, it was, it was great because I was saying, 
those guys, <laughs> those big guys, you know, uh, working on strategy uh, and so on. Now yeah. they, they, they pay attention. And to me, it's important. Why? Because they talk to the top managers. They talk to the CEOs. So they, they are educating, yeah. I would say, their leaders on, uh, on those, uh, to me, fundamental topics, of course. So I would, I would recommend uh, to Trium uh, alumni participants to have a look at what they have written because they are, they are doing a great job by connecting, I would say, the technical dimensions of supply chain management to the strategic thinking you know, and to the business uh, vision. So this is something I had to uh, pay attention to personally to answer your question. Fantastic. So thank you very much, Michelle. It's been a pleasure and I wish you all the best over the holiday season. Thank you so much, Matt. It was a great pleasure to talk to you and uh, thank you again for the quite uh, interesting. I, I, I always make progress by uh, having such conversation with people like you. So it was a pleasure uh, to participate to that and have a great uh, holiday seasons too. You've been listening to Trium Connects, a podcast for the Trium community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Trium Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best.